Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Earth News Interviews. My name is Dean. Joining me today is my co-host, Sophia. Hi, everyone. And our guest today is Professor Miriam Diamond. Thank you for being with us, Miriam. I'm so pleased to be here. Yeah, yeah. We were really excited to have you on. So uh, you wrote a piece for the Toronto Star on plastics in in our society. And and, and it's really nice. uh, It has this great uh, intersection between science and the implications of science. So we were really excited to, we we love these kinds of topics in in the podcast. But first, before we get into that, um, I want to ask you about kind of your own personal background like why what is it about the the subject of of contaminants and plastics that you really enjoy that got you into it i've been concerned about the environment for a very long time and it probably comes from my aunt who would be like 120 years old now if she were alive um, but she was a conservationist that conservationists were really the the uh, front runners of um, environmentalists. So I became really interested in environmental protection uh, at a young age. That was reinforced during my bachelor's. I did my bachelor's at University of Toronto from 1972 to 1976. That was a time when acid rain was really becoming a very important and dominant topic. I was in Department of Zoology. That was the home to David Suzuki, Donald Chant, who went on to uh, found Pollution Probe, Harold Harvey, who was one of the first scientists to, uh, he was actually the first scientist to talk about acid rain in Canada. It was a time of burgeoning environmental awareness and concern. I was very privileged to be part of a, of a dynamic and committed area of inquiry um, with very, uh, with prominent, eloquent, and deeply engaged uh, professors. They inspired me. I know just from uh, reading on some history things that those early 70s especially were were really big on the, 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 the environmental awareness was a really brand new thing in that stage. Partly, I heard it was informed by our, our first satellites into space, viewing the Earth as it as it is uh, from a satellite perspective, rather than with these maps drawn with a bunch of lines and labels. But you have an atmosphere, you have clouds. Did that, did that have an impact on you? Uh, the Apollo missions, maybe, or or seeing the, the Earth? It's absolutely, you're, you're so right that the Apollo missions, in a sense, galvanized or added an extra layer of awareness that we live on a single planet. But environmental consciousness started far, far earlier with the conservation movement in the 19, in, in sorry, the 1880s, uh, in the 1800s, uh, and then progressed with prominent conservationists such as um, uh, Muir. And Rachel Carson wrote in the 1950s about pesticides and then in the early 1960s. 
Rachel Carson was an inspiring figure who really worked against a very strong uh, political and industrial system to voice her truth about how specifically it was DDT was migrating from where it was intentionally put to cause the demise of uh, birds of prey hundreds of kilometers away. That's amazing. So imagine you've never before thought of how chemicals could move from the place that they were intended for use way far away towards like some entirely different system. Mm. It's mind-blowing at the time. Say that Rachel Carson played a very important role. Interestingly, Ursula Franklin was one of my mentors during my PhD. I can't say how proud I am that the Department of Earth Sciences is located on Ursula Franklin Street. She was a, a, a preeminent um, metallurgist. She was in the um, Department of Metallurgy within the Faculty of Applied Science. She was a pacifist. She was a commentator of society. She talked the truth about our ethics, about how technology changes society and power structures. She talked about how we need to care for each other and for the world. She was a tremendous inspiration. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned these really prominent figures throughout history. So you said Rachel Carson, Ursula Franklin, David Suzuki, that were some of them were even your, your influencers or your mentors. And it's interesting how perhaps uh, throughout uh, like the century, there's been a lot of changes in how one science is conducted, but also how scientists interact with policymakers. So the paper that we're going to discuss today touches or talks a lot about that. So I was wondering if uh, you could kind of tell us about how you've noticed that there has been a shift in the role that scientists play, whether there has been a, a, a noticeable shift throughout, um, throughout uh, the time that you've been um, a scientist and whether you notice that there's been some significant changes in the last, let's say, two decades or so when climate change has become a very, very real threat in many people's lives. Well, that's a great question. Scientists have, if I could think of a hallmark point in which scientists became deeply engaged in public discourse, it was when the atomic bomb was developed. At that point, physicists saw with horror what their science was capable of doing and what their science actually did. And that, of course, was the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of the Second World War. That's when physicists in particular spoke out. One can think of Albert Einstein as speaking out in terms of world peace, the need to have science at the service of society, the need to consider the consequences of our science. But science has always been deeply polarized. There are always scientists who pursue science as its own end. Let's take, for example, scientists who are perfecting facial recognition that is now being used to suppress 
the Uyghurs in China. You can talk to certain scientists, for example, in that field, who will draw no connection between the development of their science and the ethical implications of how that science is being applied. Mm -hmm. And then there's been scientists who are deeply committed to improving the world to the common good. I have always thought that my science was for the purpose of the common good. I have always taken very seriously that my I am supported, my salary and my research dollars come from public funding. I have a commitment to tackle issues for the common good and for the public good and to speak that truth to the public. I have found that some of my colleagues find it distasteful or even um, are fearful of going to the media and talking about science. Now more than ever, it's incumbent upon scientists to communicate to the public. Let me tell you why I believe this. We've been there before, but certain politicians and sectors of society have ridiculed science because I believe that science and academia in the broader sense are dedicated to speaking the truth. The truth is often inconvenient and impinges on certain sectors of society, and those sectors seek to discredit it. A prime example is the discrediting of climate scientists. But there are many other examples that can go back to tobacco causing lung cancer, acid rain coming from trees. <laughs> there are many examples of that. It's incumbent upon scientists to speak the truth, especially in an era of fake truths and how many people are embracing fake truth. If we as scientists stick to our ivory towers, we run the threat of losing societal support for the science that we do. We can't afford to lose support for science because science, and but I mean this broadly, I mean social science and humanities actually, are the way that we're going to solve the tremendously serious problems that are facing us today. It's so important for us to go to the community, to hear what the community's concerned about and to respond to those needs with the truth. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think you said it best about how science is often discredited because it directly uh, interferes with some interests of, uh, of, of companies that are just trying to make a just trying to make a dollar or and, and exploit others by that by that regard. And it's been happening since the Industrial Revolution when humanity kind of just started to become addicted to fossil fuels. And ever since that, coal became the principal energy source to heat homes. And um, it was an energy source that was potent, cheap, and also dirty. And after that, fossil fuels weren't only limited to use as a power source, but they came the raw material for plastic. And that's actually the subject of the conversation that we're going to have today, because oil and plastic are so intertwined. So with the warnings of the IPCC that global temperatures will continue to rise for decades to come, what does that mean for uh, plastic pollution? So how, how does oil actually relate to the amount of, of plastic that we're creating? So we're already being kind of locked into this temperature increase that's guaranteed at this point to be at least two degrees. 
But how are we being locked into the plastic future? And Dean, uh, you have a fantastic paper summary for us. Yes, uh, I'll have Miriam help me throughout, Shirley. Um, So this was an opinion piece that was featured in the Toronto Star, and it was titled, Are We Locked Into a Plastic Future? In it, Miriam is calling for more awareness of the lock-in problem, which is preventing us from shifting away from fossil fuels and plastic use. So Miriam, if you would, what do you mean by lock-in? And could you give us some examples? Yeah, great question for sure. So a lot of us are locked into a lot of things. So lock-in could be as simple as I'm locked into where I move because I just can't move anywhere versus a very large industry such as the oil and gas extraction industry that's locked into continued production. Lock-in was first coined by George Unruh of George Mason University. It has long been understood that industries make major investments. And once you make that major investment, it's hard to walk away from that investment. Clearly, it's hard to cut your losses and walk away because you've got a tremendous amount of money. It's uh, capital infrastructure. It's also soft infrastructure, such as what surrounds and enables that industry. So the reason why lock-in is is very important to understand is that, uh, you know, as Sophia, you said, the IPCC is very clear that we are actually locked in, in a different sense, in the biophysical sense, to continued global warming at this point past two degrees. Yet, as a global society... We continue to extract and use oil. I'm going to use oil particularly because of its higher greenhouse gas content. And um, coal less so, but there's certainly lock-in with coal, and coal is probably the worst. But let's just let's just fix on, on oil. So one might think, you know, if you were a Martian landing on the Earth right now, and you'd go, so wait a minute, right, okay. So you're undergoing, your Earth is undergoing climate change, It's going to dramatically change um, the climate. And wait a minute, it's not just the climate, but your whole society is just positioned on this really sort of razor thin edge of a very stable current climate. Uh, Climate change is causing disasters at greater frequency. More people are dying. More money is being siphoned out of the economy because of climate change, and wait a minute, you're still producing oil? And wait a minute, you're still heating your homes with oil? And wait, you're increasing production of oil? Like, really? That's a great example. That's pretty crazy, actually. (laughs) And then if you're the earthling, you go, well, yeah, we've got this huge investment in the oil industry. We have enormous investments in Alberta. We have offshore uh, sites that are drilling for oil. We have have everything from the petroleum engineers and geologists figuring out where the, the best deposits are of the reservoirs all the way through to production and bringing the oil to my gas tank and to my home. What do you mean we have to change? I'm sorry. Like, I can't because I'm locked in. And... Our whole system is locked in. So this whole enormous infrastructure is locked in. 
We continue to, to subsidize oil production and that number is an astonishing 4.7 trillion, 4.7 trillion dollars went to fossil fuel subsidies in 2015. So this is the prime example of how we're locked into continuing our production of oil. So the world goes, wait a minute, we had the Kyoto Protocol, we had the Copenhagen Protocol, we had the, the Paris Agreement, We've got to reduce greenhouse gases. So we're on the one hand, industry and society is continued is locked into continued production and consumption of oil. And on the other hand, governments and civil society is saying, let's try to reduce demand. The two have not been reconciled. We continue to supply, but we're saying reduce demand. So if you reduce demand for oil, let's say for the transportation and for the building sectors, which are the one of the largest consumers of oil, then where do you put your oil? You have to find a lucrative sink for what you are producing. If I'm not going to burn it, what am I going to do with it? Two things I can do with it. I can put it into plastics because plastics come from petroleum feedstock. And I can also make more petrochemicals, specifically some of the contaminants that I study. And I study them because they cause environmental and human health risks. Our op-ed specifically spoke about plastics. And we spoke about it because both the oil industry and the chemical industry are accelerating their investment in plants that take oil and convert it into feedstocks for plastics. In fact, there has been a $200 billion investment uh, since um, about in the past decade. Uh, there's been numerous new large facilities that have been built to take petroleum feedstocks and turn it into plastic. And plastic, from a business viewpoint, is a good investment because it's, um, in fact, it has a higher rate of return than just burning your oil. Right. So, but why am I worried about plastics? Well, plastics are very interesting. On the one hand, plastics have been a tremendous democratizer of commodities. Before plastics, almost only the elite could afford to have a toothbrush, a hair comb. Like, just think of all the things that are plastic in your, in your life. There was only this wealthy that could afford commodities. Dina's looking around. <laughs> yeah, I'm just looking at all the plastics in my, in my house. If, every, if anything doesn't have plastic, it has like plastic around it, at least for like decorative purposes. Totally. So plastics have been amazing in terms of democratizing a lifestyle. You kind of point out two things, you, you highlight two things that we need to counter this. First, you say that we need to have integrated policies uh, regarding fossil fuel and plastic supply and demand. And then second, you say that we need to remove the marketplace distortions. 
which I'm assuming you mean uh, the petroleum companies, subsidies and things like that. Could you elaborate on, on what the distortions are? The distortions are the subsidies. The problem is we've got too much of a good thing. It's not that we're saying don't make plastic. No, no, no. It's not that. It's that we're making too much of it. And too much of it is throwaway. Too much of it has a short lifespan. We need to judiciously produce plastic products. And one of the reasons is <laughs> because the environment is now starting to choke in plastic pollution. It's horrifying to see the level of plastic pollution in countries that can't afford sophisticated waste management systems. That's one thing of sort of just all the plastic bottles and plastic bags and plastic everything. And the other thing is, as you, as probably everybody knows, there's plastics all over the place, including in your drinking water. There's microplastics all over the place. It's a sign of overproduction. And we, we recently published, for example, on finding plastics in the Arctic. We're not the first to publish on this. Others have found plas microplastics in the Arctic, but it's wrong. It's morally wrong to have microplastics cover the earth. Yeah, we actually recently had Samantha on, on a recent episode, for any listeners who missed that. Uh, go back and listen to our interview with Samantha. It was it was really enlightening. I really enjoyed that talk. Um, so what are what are some popular strategies for, for uh, disincentivizing plastic, petroleum, or at least removing those marketplace distortions? Are there any, like, strategies that have worked in Canada or elsewhere? So, yes, there, there are strategies. Um, the first strategy needs to be removing the subsidies so that the playing field becomes more level with regard to alternative energy sources. I mean, ultimately, we have to decarbonize or wean ourselves off of an oil-based economy. We have to move from an oil-based economy. And the way we have to do that is by removing oil subsidies, making alternative energy more economic. But let's be really clear here, because what does economic mean? You know, our current economics have externalized the cost of climate change. So when I say economic, we really have to bring in the cost of climate change. So the solutions um, need to be, I think, decreasing investment in, um, and my colleagues aren't going to like this, but oil and gas research, because I think we need a lot more investment into alternative energy sources, and that goes beyond carbon capture. What we need to do is to then uh, redistribute the marketplace in terms of energy. What we need to do um, is as each one of us as individuals needs to start curtailing our consumption within this carbon-based economy. That includes both plastics uh, and oil-based activities, which, well, you know, the pandemic has done that with respect to flying, but we haven't figured out how to, how to fix that problem in terms of what we do with our, for example, airline industry. So that's where governments come in. And I believe the governments play as our representatives. Governments are our representatives, play a role in helping us to transition. What we need to do, I believe, is that our federal government and provincial governments 
need to embrace a vision of what a post-carbon economy looks like. And we've not done that. I could go on a lot longer on what that post-carbon vision looks like. But what I say is that it looks like a, a future seven generations from now, which means your grandchildren. It means that your grandchildren will have opportunity, opportunity to choose what your grandchildren want to do in life. It means justice, which is fairness for all. And that means everybody from climate refugees to those of us who are so privileged to live in Canada. It means sharing the optimism for for a few fu- for future for the future we need to have a vision and what i hope is that the government as being our representatives embraces a bold vision to move forward and helps us to move there what i would like to see is that oil and gas that's taken out of the ground in alberta is used to transition us to a low carbon future i want to see the Alberta oil patch be harnessed to build those windmills, to build those solar voltaics. I want to see people in our department, in earth, in earth science, explore, find, bring to market rare earth elements where that market has been captured by China and is held very tightly by China. I want to see Canadian production because rare earth elements are essential for photovoltaics and for other low carbon energy technologies. Canada needs an industrial strategy to put us at the forefront of being world leaders to be prosperous in the future based on a low carbon economy. We're not doing that by investing in new pipelines. We need that money desperately to go into building this new future for your grandchildren. Yeah, absolutely. And you say that, you know, we need to invest in alternatives to fossil fuels, but I'm interested in what about alternatives to plastics? Because they're here to stay, right? What's uh, like some alternatives that you can suggest for us to use on the daily or just, you know, more investment into into materials that are environmentally friendly? We have certain materials for their functionality. You cannot have a particular functionality that's necessarily going to be environmentally friendly. They're at odds. The reasons why we use plastic is because it's durable, it resists degradation, and that is antithetical to being environmentally friendly. So what I say is produce the plastic that we need where we need it. There's the whole concept of essential use. Where is it essential to be using plastic? Because I can tell you there are a whole bunch of uses where plastic is not essential. And for example, the federal government is moving forward with bans on single-use plastic, where those particular products are not essential. So it's a matter of identifying where plastics are essential. We need to keep producing those, but we need to be mindful that the world is filling up with plastic. Let's make durable things that don't break after I use it three times and then finds its way into the garbage. And plastics, they're recyclable like two or three times, right? Eventually, they the polymer chains break down and you know they, they lose their, their purity, as opposed to like, say, metals or, or glasses or something like that. Um, and I'm sure newer technologies will have new materials. Plastics don't recycle well. 
Plastics are combustible. I mean, they do have a whole bunch of additives and flame retardants are added, um, but ultimately they're combustible. So that means when you recycle plastics, they cannot be typically recycled into the same commodity because they cannot be purified. For example, any plastic that's used as a food contact material cannot be recycled into new food contact material because it can't be sanitized. Mm, I didn't know that, actually. Ah, so plastics are downcycled. Pop bottles turn into ski jackets. Pop bottles turn into plastic wood. Plastic is not, it's not upcycled. It's always downcycled into a lower value, lower functionality material because it can't have that same level of purity. Right. And then to give more life to really, really old plastics, they'll even put in new virgin plastic material in there just to try and get some use, last end use out of that that older plastic, right? But it's still downcycled. It's never recycled. It's still downcycled. So a great example of that, uh, I had kitchen spoons that had brominated flame retardants in them. And it's very likely that my kitchen spoons were fabricated out of computer cases to which <laughs> these flame retardants were added intentionally. But you could not recycle that plastic into a new computer case with the same level of durability. And instead, it went into my cheap black plastic kitchen spoons. But you can only downcycle so far. Mm-hmm. So plastic recycling is not the solution. It takes a lot of energy to collect and recycle plastic. And just look at the law of thermodynamics. Sorry, doesn't work. And that's why, for example, Scandinavia burns its plastic waste because it just it recovers the um, energy from plastic. So plastic recycling, it's mostly a feel good thing. So maybe therein lies kind of the difference between the fossil fuel problem and the plastic problem that, you know, you can't recycle energy or I guess you can't because Scandinavia is doing it it like I guess I guess it recycles the the raw materials for energy but I wonder if there's a more kind of insidious difference between the fossil fuel and the plastic problem and do you think that one will outlast the other so it's up to us as citizens to exercise our choice through consumer habits it's up to us as citizens to vote for governments who think seven generations ahead. Of course, I'm using the seven generations that comes to us from indigenous culture, which I believe it's very important to embrace that long view. And seven generations in geological time cycles, mm, not a long view. Yeah, we traditionally think of like, in in Canadian politics, it's it's the federal government versus the Albertan government or something like that with, with these kinds of policy disputes uh, over over climate change and and the subsidies and stuff but actually the federal government itself kind of combats itself in 2018 the canadian federal government passed the greenhouse gas pollution pricing act which puts a price on carbon-based fuels yet every year the same federal government gives upwards of a billion dollars in tax breaks and incentives to the fossil fuel industry how does this happen and who's writing these policies (laughs) (laughs) well I'm not in government. I have a a small amount of familiarity with how policy is formed. And as it said, it's like sausage making. You don't want to see it. Mm -hmm. So policies and legislation in a democratic society come about through compromise, 
and through different voices. And to be very clear, it's not just a level playing field, but it's also who lobbies strongest and who's got the most money to lobby. So policies are often very divergent and contradictory. As you mentioned, on the one hand, the federal government is aiming to meet our commitment to the Paris Climate Accord to reduce greenhouse gases. And yet, on the other hand, our federal government has said that they're going to invest in a new oil pipeline. So I think those are very contradictory and really speak to this issue of not comprehensively addressing the supply and demand side of oil production simultaneously. So that's where it comes down to each one of us and civil society to say, sorry, that's not good enough. You are not protecting my grandchildren. That is not going to work. That's why we need this bold strategy and we need the vision and then the strategy to get us there. The vision for this, you know, equitable future that is has long-term sustainability and we're going to get there by harnessing Alberta oil to transition us. We're going to do that by harnessing our mining industry, which is so important to help us get there. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, I couldn't I couldn't have said it better myself. I think I hope I hope policymakers uh, watch this episode and listen to it so they can, you know, get some fire under them to <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. There's been fire in the belly, but you have to keep at it. So, you know, I made a choice to have kids. It's my responsibility to keep fighting. And if it means chaining myself to something and getting arrested, so be it. And you know what? Like I'm old and I can afford to do that. But you guys, you guys are starting out. It's your future. My generation has done a tremendous job of ensuring that your future is in greater peril than what they experienced. I also just want to say, just as an aspiring science communicator, I really appreciate how much you outreach to the public. Whenever I see like a list of, you know, so-and-so number of scientists signed this petition, this thing about, you know, we need to do this. I look and see, all right, who's from U of T on there? And it's, yep, Miriam Diamond, yep. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate the, the, uh, the activism aspect of your job. Thank you. Thank you very much. I do want to say, you know, I, there's no, there, I don't have a firewall between I, I have my science and my advocacy, but my advocacy is informed by my scientific understanding. And that understanding is that I cannot afford to be silent. I, it's, it is my obligation to you and to my kids to be active. And to be a, a loud, ad, a loud and annoying advocate. And the world is better for it. So we appreciate it. <laughs> Let's hope. So uh, we usually kind of have two questions to end off the episode. And um, mine seems kind of ridiculous at this point, just because it, it seems very obvious now. But if you uh, weren't a contaminant scientist, who would you be? <laughs> it's too late now. <laughs> I'm at the, I'm coming towards... Uh, the end of my career, but what I hope to do is to become a more vocal advocate. I intend to spend less time, well, I spend no time at the lab bench, but I intend to spend less time producing scientific papers 
that get me brownie points in terms of my NSERC and that, uh, and spend more time advocating because we just don't have the luxury um, to producing to produce more arcane papers that nobody reads. To say a bunch of our papers are widely read, I have to say. Brownie points, brownie <laughs> points. <laughs> and my ending question would be: um, if you could solve one scientific mystery, whether it's in your field or or another field, social sciences or political sciences, um, what what scientific mystery would that be? If you had the answers, yeah, the mystery has to be at this point finding uh, optimizing a low carbon energy. So I'll tell you why. It's just more important to me than anything in the world. We can't continue to have a healthy, stable, and prosperous society based on a carbon economy. We have so much investment, for example, in medicine. Just look at the huge donations going into U of T in medicine. But you know what? It's not going to work. It's not going to work because society will not have the prosperity and stability to roll out all these medical advances unless we have a stable climate. And uh, I think Dean uh, has a fantastic quote uh, that will kind of summarize what, what we talked about this in this episode. Yeah, so our, our scientist quote actually isn't from a scientist this week, but someone close to science. All right, so it is, <clears throat> it is important that the world get together and be sufficiently a unit to face the problems which attack us as a unit. The problems with the ocean, with the atmosphere, and the soil do not distinguish among us. How then can we distinguish among ourselves? There must be some way of getting together and of deciding not that the United States will tell Brazil what to do, not that Brazil will tell the United States what to do, but what the people of the earth will tell themselves what they must do. And that is from Isaac Asimov in 1989, speaking at the Humanist Institute. That is awesome. I, I, I'm a big fan of his. That is an absolutely fabulous quote. But I just want to—I want to say—and it's so perfect, Dean, that you picked that. So Thomas Homer Dixon, who's a, a commentator on—he's a political scientist and very influential thinker about the future of the world, world stability, the major these huge factors that impinge on. On, on the future. Anyways, in his latest book, Commanding Hope, that's what he talks about. It's the world coming together with a common vision. And what has happened is we're, blow, we're blowing apart in all these different visions amplified by the internet and fake news. What we need more than anything right now is that common vision to come together. Because, and as Seth Klein has written in his recent book about climate change, we came, the West came together to fight fascism. It was, it, it was an impossible goal in 1935. We didn't have the technology, we didn't have the money, but we came together to fight it. And we did, we, we fought back the fascists. That's the type of common vision, passion and dedication that society needs today. And we need to direct that to climate change. Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, I think we're turning to the Ezra Klein show. Everybody, go read "Commanding Hope." That's the that's the official recommendation of this episode. <laughs> Miriam, thank you so much for being with us. This is a fantastic episode. We learned a lot, and we were very lucky to have you on the show. So, thank you so much. Thank you, and I want to compliment you on putting this together. 
And thank you to our listeners as well. We hope you tune in next time for a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no stone unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university. 